0: Father, Abel, we thank you for this day, for this Shabbat. Father, we pray your blessings over all these children. Father, we pray that you fill them with your Ruach, Father, that they would receive uh, the, the
1: words that you need them to receive, Father, to hear, uh, that you would use uh, all the teachers, Father, to bring your word uh, to them. Uh, Father, we,
0: we pray these blessings over them. in you should. Amen. Amen.
1: I feel when you were dismissed. before we start the message today, we're going to show a quick little video, when we turn the lights down, uh, about the amazing work of the uh, mjaa Joseph project in Israel and Ethiopia and all around the world. It's a great work that MJAA is doing, the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, which this congregation is is an official member, we're part of it. Uh, We encourage you to attend their national conference this coming July. Uh, This is one of the many things that the the alliance is doing all over the world. Uh, And our Mark Huey is one of the executives there, helping with the fundraising. Uh, And and so uh, this is some of the things that our our, our donations go to. Is this amazing work of the Joseph Project? So we could play that video.
2: Israel is, and always has been, the land God chose as his resting place and the home for his people. Out of the ashes of World War II, God called his people back to their land, and the modern state of Israel was born. God is bringing together Christians and Jews under the banner of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, to continue in the restoration of the Jewish
3: people in Israel and around the world. Israel lives in a very difficult region. Over 350 million Arabs in 23 Arab countries, most of them devoted to the destruction of Israel. That creates a high cost in terms of security. Other items in the budget have to be cut, like social services. More and more people fall under the poverty line. Over 30% of the children and 25% of the adults. This points out the
2: reason why private charity is such an important thing to Israel. The Joseph Project blesses needy Israelis by providing for their basic needs. With the supplies stocked in our 22,000 square foot warehouse, we can distribute clothing, blankets, medical supplies, furniture, and other supplies across Israel. We are the number one importer of humanitarian aid in Israel today, and we are honored to be so. Like our forefather, Joseph, 3,500 years ago in ancient Egypt, we fill our storehouse so we can freely give to those who need. We handle everything from beginning to end. We import it, we store it, we deliver it, and we deliver it to the people that we know need it the most, regardless of race, religion, or creed. And our social department, they know what families need in the support We're giving them the names of the families, and they're giving directly to the families and directly to their children. We've built an efficient, sustainable infrastructure that moves the supplies from the donors around the world to giant shipping containers that are loaded onto ships and taken to our warehouse in Israel. From there, we cooperate with various local NGOs with whom we have built long-standing relationships to accurately address the most crucial needs in Israel. The trucks are loaded with supplies at our facilities and sent throughout the country to single-parent families, rehab centers, orphanages, hospitals, and more. In 2016, the Israel Defense Force established Operation Good Neighbor, allowing the passage of humanitarian aid to the displaced Syrian civil population. Much of his aid was made possible by the Joseph Project, who imported clothing, dry meals, medical equipment, and supplies from around the world. Because we distribute charitable gifts, a single financial contribution can result in a tenfold increase of the actual value of the aid given. The Joseph Project affects the lives of upwards of 200,000 people every year with humanitarian aid.
3: Nothing better than saving lives, and that's what Project Joseph has done for us.
2: By helping those in need, we are creating deep connections with the Israeli leaders in government and charitable institutions, all by generously giving in the blessed name of Yeshua. The Joseph Project enable us to make these children whole and happy again. The Joseph Project sent us couches, chairs for every child, every orphan that has no supplies. The Joseph Project changed the life of people here in the Chemish and everywhere. On behalf of the citizens of Bechemesh, I say thank you. We're working with ministries all throughout the United States. Some of those ministries, Operation Blessings, Samaritan's Purse, CBN Israel, TBN, ...provide not only financial help, but also humanitarian aid. Through the Joseph Project, you can bring comfort to Israel... ...by sowing into our streamlined supply chain that multiplies your impact. In the book of
3: Romans, Paul describes the Jewish olive tree... ...as a Jewish root and a Jewish trunk and the nations grafted in. Maybe for the first time in 1700 years, the Joseph Project is giving... Christians an opportunity to demonstrate this olive tree in action and see the true prophetic biblical body of the Messiah. That has the power to change
2: the world. The Joseph Project needs your help. Now is the time to consider partnering with us as Jews and Christians working together in the land of Israel. Join us as we bring help and healing
0: and be a part of biblical prophecy.
1: In addition to uh, Mark Huey, our own uh, Dr. Sally Knox is also very instrumental with the Joseph Project. In fact, she has single handedly organized literally millions and millions of dollars of uh, medical equipment and medical aid, particularly from uh, Baylor Scott White Hospital, to be transported to Israel uh, and also uh, to Lebanon uh, as well. So we're very involved with this, and if God puts it on your heart, please go to, to mjaa.org and, and you can uh, partner with the Joseph Project as well. Amen. Well. Barcelona. Are we ready? Here? Okay, it's Today I want to speak about boasting. Uh, in what do you boast? Uh, in what should you boast? Uh, to get at this, I want to look in a new way today at Galatians chapter six. Uh, the first half of Galatians six, giving back to the last verse of chapter five, talks a lot about a particular heart condition that needs to be addressed by us at, at, at your behavioral level. How you behave. And the last part of chapter 6 talks about, about how that hard condition can be solved by the gospel at an identity level of who you are uh, in Messiah. So let's read together Galatians uh, 5 26 through uh, 6 15. And then Paul says this Shaul, let us not become conceited, uh, provoking and envying each other. Rather, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, Should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Messiah. And then if you think you're something when you're nothing,
0: you deceive yourselves. Each of you
1: should test your own actions. Then you can take pride in yourself without comparing yourself to somebody else. For each of you should carry his own load.
2: Don't be deceived.
1: God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Those who sow to please their sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Those who sow to please the spirit from the spirit will reap the eternal life. Let's not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Therefore, as you opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. Those who want to oppress others by means of the flesh, they're trying to compel you Gentiles to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Messiah. Not even those who are circumcised actually keep the Torah, yet they want you to be circumcised, why? That they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. But may I never boast, except in the cross, in the execution stake, in the tree of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world.
0: Because neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything.
1: What counts is a new creation. Amen. Amen. In the book of Galatians, listen in the overhead. Uh, Paul has two main concerns here and in the book. The whole book as a whole. Number one, he's feared that the Galatians are maturing for the key gospel doctrine of justification by faith alone.
2: And number two, the second concern
1: is that the zeal, uh, zeal for the Galatians' proper behavior and their unity. Uh, they wouldn't be fighting and devouring each other. Uh, and Paul brings both of these concerns together here in this final chapter, chapter 6. So let's go over it again. In, in, in Galatians 5, through 6, 10, first half, Paul's called for a kind of relationship with other believers that's produced only by a circumcised heart, a new heart. And in the last half of Galatians six, he explains this new heart is only produced by a new identity, which in turn is created only by the gospel. Now, what's the heart condition that he's focusing on? Look at Galatians five twenty six. Paul says, "Let us not be conceited, provoking and envying one another." When we're conceited, probably better translated as it, boastful or desirous of vain glory. Uh, the Greek word here is okay, the Greek word kenosis, which literally means empty of glory. To be, uh, Empty of glory uh, means that you are desperate for other people's recognition and affirmation. You sense an emptiness within, and you're trying to fill it with other people's affirmation of you and recognition. You are desperate to prove yourself. Indeed, in the next slide, uh, that's the natural human heart condition of someone who's not secure and not content in their own ultimate identity in Messiah. And Paul's encouraging us here not to live any longer in that insecurity.
2: Romans 1 and 2
1: tells us that uh, all of us know deep down inside that we were made to serve and to honor God. Which means, and in the next slide, which means that every part of your being Uh, Needs that has been created for and has been designed to hear God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. The approval of God. The recognition of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what you need. That's what I need. And we're all born uh, with this cave, uh, this cavity, this God-shaped hole uh, that we all yearn for the Lord to fill within us. What you ultimately need,
2: more than anything else,
1: is the recognition of God, uh, the well done of God. And because we don't have that, because we've turned away from God, we're desperately now trying to fill that cavity with other people's approval, often at the expense of everybody else. Uh, so, So we go on to all our relationships, and instead of going out to serve, we go out to use other people. We go out all our relationships with the logic of the marketplace, which is, how can I profit from this person? How can I profit from this relationship? How can I bolster my own fragile sense of of being a good person? How do I build myself up, even if it's at your expense? Galatians 5.26 Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Envying one another is the inferiority complex. Uh, you compare yourself, and you're angry, why Because you feel inferior to this person? And so you resent them. Provoking, that's the opposite. The other word you share actually means uh, to compete with, uh, to be aggressive, to challenge somebody to a fight, uh, to make somebody your rival. So here's the person with the opposite. We've a superiority complex who says, I can beat you. Whereas the Indian person person with the inferiority complex says, I can't beat you, and therefore I hate you. Uh, But but the point is, both are born out of insecurity. Both are examples of going into every relationship, not to serve, but to bolster how I feel about myself. Uh, You're always asking, how does this relationship help me, or or, or not help me, to bolster myself? How does that feel me this emptiness inside of me? So I feel that I'm an important person. So I feel better about myself. So we go into every situation, and we're comparing ourselves constantly, often at a subconscious level. And therefore, we're actually going out to use people, and uh, to exploit people, not to serve them, not to love them.
2: Now in Galatians 6, 1-6, Paul's saying,
1: Here's how you should live instead of all that. Here's how you should resist those self-centered temptations of how you relate to people, which comes from your insecurity and your lack of appreciating who you are in Messiah Yeshua. Look at Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But watch on on yourself, uh, lest you too be tempted.
2: Notice that Paul says,
1: if anyone is called to the trespass, restore them. This is not confronting them or going to someone about a personal grievance, as in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. Uh, this is not talking about that. The text doesn't say restore the relationship. Paul's not talking here about someone who sinned against you. No. It says restore him. Not the relationship, restore him. It says do this to a person who's caught in sin. So if you see someone, a brother or sister in the Lord, uh, with a bad habit, uh, with a character flaw, and it's pulling them down, maybe making them always blow up their relationships uh, because of their abrasiveness. Maybe they can't keep a job because of their irresponsibility. Whatever it is, you look at someone, you see here's a person who's who's constantly in trouble. Here's someone all the time screwing up. Uh, Here's someone I know who's caught in a sin what does the text say if you have the relationship toward yourself if you're humble and not self-righteous, self-righteous you can move in that relationship and restore them gently you can serve him and be able to and then have him able to receive you uh, uh, with your loving, loving correction however if you're a vainglorious person uh, you look at someone who's messed up and in your pride, in your conceit you'll say just get me away from this loser. <laughs> you say to yourself, what's in it for me? I'm not going to get anything out of this relationship. A vainglorious a vain- person goes into every relationship with the logic of the marketplace. You <laughs> add it up with a cost benefit analysis. Am I going to get as much out of this relationship as I'm putting into it? Or, at least, uh, or, or at, least, at least as much or more? Is this person going to help me network, uh, meet other people? Uh, the, type, the type of people that I want to meet is this person going to make me feel good about myself or, or the opposite problem yeah. we also see uh, do I pursue consciously or not a codependent uh, enabling relationship or I purposely seek out people who are a mess why? so that they need me uh, and I can help them well, I, that, that way I feel good about myself but that's just another form of being conceited and self-centered and glorious. Because deep down, you really don't want to restore them. You want to keep them dependent on you.
2: Or maybe you want nothing to do with them because Because you're too busy
1: uh, uh, trying to reach all your goals. We don't want to waste our time with others who can't help us rise up the economic ladder. (coughs) Especially if you're like kind of a black hole, right? you just give and give and give, uh, and they never get any better. But if your attitude towards yourself was right, if you were not vainglorious... You would move out into relationships as a servant. You wouldn't use the person either by keeping them dependent on you uh, and not restoring them or by not getting involved with them at all uh, because uh, uh, they're a wreck. Paul is here calling for a kind of relationship that takes a unique sort of heart, a unique sort of identity, one that's been healed by the Messiah uh, of the vainglory. That's the chief characteristic of all sinners, which is the need to use other people to bolster your own inner sense of self-worth. If you're a carnal man, you use other people, and you compare yourself favorably to them in order to cover over your own inner reality that you are alienated from God. To make up for the fact that you don't have God saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant.
0: And so you're out there trying to find everybody
1: else to tools who, who will tell you how great you are. Uh, and you use people either by keeping them dependent on you, or by comparing yourself favorably to them, what to make you feel good about yourself, would help you network and climb the economic ladder of success. But in all these cases, other people are what they're a means for you; they're not an end in themselves. So in Galatians six verse two. Where it says, bear one another's burdens, and in this way fulfill the law of Messiah. It's referring back to verse 1. So the picture here is someone, the picture that someone's struggling with a 100-pound load. That's a heavy piece of furniture. Uh, if you come to help them, how do you do it? Well, you take one end of the furniture, and they take the other end. Now you each only have 50 pounds to lift up. And the reason why two of you can now carry this 100-pound piece of furniture. You grab one end, and he grabs the other end. Just because you're each are not really carrying 50 pounds. You're not not really carrying 100 pounds. It's not all on you. If you would lift lift up a whole thing by yourself, you'd have to lift 100 pounds. pounds. But if two Mm -hmm. of you lifted up, you each only have to lift 50 pounds, right? So the metaphor Mm -hmm. is this. Put it on the overhead. The metaphor Mm -hmm. is you can never help someone without some Mm -hmm. of that burden falling on you. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest. That's not something most of us want to do. We don't want help if, if it burdens us, if it inconveniences us in any way. Dr. Edwards had a great discussion of people's objections as to why they don't want to help the poor. Uh, and one objection, objection is, well, I can't, can't afford it. it. And Dr. Ted Edwards, Edwards he, he responds like this, this on the overhead." He says <laughs> this, if we're never obliged to relieve other people's burdens, except we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do, how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when in fact we bear no burden at all? Yeah. What he's saying is this. When you say, I can't afford it, what you mean is, I can't afford it without burdening myself. Yeah. Sure. But that's the whole point, right? Galatians 6 2. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of the Messiah. Serving often involves a sacrifice. When you see someone, for example, in financial trouble, there's often no way to help them really without some of that burden falling on you. By the way, that's
3: why it's called a sacrifice.
1: Paul is talking about the kind of relationship here that on our own we're not really capable of doing. We typically only help people when it helps us feel good about ourselves. Many people who donate to charities only do it so they can feel good about themselves. And they will to give to the degree that it really does not burden them, but builds them up. Because at bottom, they're vainglorious. And Paul here says, you need to have a whole different kind of relationship with one another, one which only flows from a new creation heart. So, next so verse in Galatians 6, 6 3 and 4, uh, talk about this in idea. Galatians 6 3 For anyone who thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. <clears throat> Paul's saying, you're, you're never going to live that kind of servant life. You're never going to move out the relationships where you really are trying to serve and not use that person to build up your own self-image unless there's an underlying humility about you. Paul says, remember, on your own, apart from Messiah, you are nothing. Yeshua is teaching, for example, Yeshua is teaching us about prayer. And likewise, he says to his own disciples, he says this in Luke 11, 13. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, home, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now notice, very nonchalantly, sure, as the as sin, in, uh, says the disciples, oh, by the way, you're evil. <laughs> Indeed, that's half the gospel. You are evil. You are nothing. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought uh, and, and the way to overcome this self-deception and this pride and this conceit and this vaingloriousness is not to only enter into uh, your, these self serving relationships that make you feel good about
0: yourself. Don't limit yourself to that.
1: Uh, that's so self-centered. I'm going to enter into a relationship that helps me or makes me feel good. Instead, the attitude would be: as I move out into every relationship, let me ask myself, how can I serve this person? How can I bless this person and point them more and more to God? But when I see myself using this person's dependence or independence to build my own flagging and and fragile sense of self-esteem, let me realize that my self-image and my self-worth is flagging and fragile because I'm not related to God the way I should be. And so the accolades and the applause of everybody in the world
0: will never fill that gap, that, that empty, God-shaped hole inside of me.
1: Only Yeshua can fill it and make you whole.
0: Look at the overhead.
1: Nothing will heal your heart except Yeshua himself looking at you with delight and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Galatians 6, verse 4. each one test his own work. And then his recent evokes will be himself alone, and not comparing himself to his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Paul's saying, if you were really healed in your heart, you wouldn't have to be comparing yourself to other people. Uh, That's a way of bolstering your own ego. And verse 5 says, you you then run the race in your own lane. You can carry your own load without comparing yourself to others. (coughs) Uh, and this also helps you not to be so easily irritated by people with problems. You know, some of you were blessed, with growing up with really great families, uh, great parents. You were lots of love growing up, uh, and, and therefore you, you were relatively well-adjusted, uh, got a fair amount of self-control. And if this is you, you come in on a character scale, 1 to 10, you come into the kingdom now as a new believer, perhaps already starting out at a five. And the five years of growing the Messiah, let's say now you're six. Here's another person, brand new believer. comes from a terrible home, terrible family. Both his mother and his father were a mess. Maybe he didn't even have a mother or father living with him. Uh, he comes to faith. He comes to the new life of the Messiah uh, at a one. At the five years of growing the Messiah, he's now at a four. Tremendous progress. Uh, but you, you're now at a six. You look at him at a four and you say, Well, I'm more spiritually mature than him. Uh, I've got more self-control. I'm more gentle with people. Uh, I'm more loving. I'm more patient. I'm more long-suffering. But you're forgetting. They've got their load, and you've got your load. The race is in your own lane. Perhaps from Yeshua's perspective, given where they started from and how much more progress they've actually made, they're more spiritually mature than you. To say like the widow who donated too much to the temple treasury, she gave more in God's eyes than the millionaire gave a thousand dollars. So don't compare yourself to others. That's why, for example, at the end of the Gospel of John, when Yeshua applies to Peter that he's going to die for his faith, if Peter turns a looks over at John and asks Yeshua, hey, what about him? Yeshua says this, John 21 22, if I want him to remain until I come, What's that to you? You follow me. In the same way, in uh, uh, the, the Chronicles, Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan's always saying to the people, I only tell you your own story. Don't ask me about someone else's story. In Galatians 6, five. For each will bear his own load. So what Paul's doing here, he's saying, Get your eyes on God. Don't keep looking at everybody else. Uh, to, uh, to stop using everybody else. And the gospel itself gives us this greatest model of servanthood. Look at the temple. What's in the middle of the temple? You know, God architected every single detail of the temple, right? Everything is laid out just according to his plan and blueprint. Leap it to the center of the temple, which in a sense is the center of the universe, the center of reality, uh, what do you get? No image. There's no image to bow down to. There's not really even a person there, but, but an event. Because at the heart of reality is a gold slab,
0: a mercy seat.
1: It's at the top, i we'll puts put it to the overhead. it's at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, above the law, with the blood sprinkled, and through this God is saying to us, the very heart of reality, the very heart of creation and redemption is my life for yours. In contrast, what sin does it makes us operate on the opposite principle uh, your life uh, for me. I'm going to you sacrifice for me, uh, for my self-interest and my self-image. Your life is served mine. You sacrifice your needs and serve mine. But Yeshua came into the world saying, My life for yours. My life is served you. My life poured out for you. I sacrifice for you. There are two options for living your life. Uh, And and every single day, every single hour, you are deciding which of these two operating principles you will live by. So for example, you are out here with your parents. You've got a wonderful plan for your day. Then your kid gets sick. Uh, He has a need. Uh, she melts down, she really needs you to spend time with you with her.
0: What are you going to choose? You can die to yourself and say, My life for
1: you, and have that child grow up feeling loved. And sense, you've died, so if your child may you live. But if you choose the alternative, if you never sacrifice, if you never die to yourself in your parenting life, if you say, sorry, I've got my needs, I've got my schedule, I've got my goals, you can't get in my way. Your child will grow up broken and a wreck. All love, that's all love, all real love is substitutionary sacrifice. My life for yours. This is the heart of the world. This is the heart of the universe. And Paul, here in Galatians 6, he says, you can live your life this way, or you can live the old, me-centered, vainglorious uh, glorious way. Uh, the self-centered way. Uh, it isn't my life or yours, but your life uh, for me. So, next overhead. Uh, how do we get to this Yeshua-centered, other-centered, love-centered, self-sacrificial, servant lifestyle? How do we fill this cavity, in our heart. That's what the last half of Galatians 6 is all about. Look at Galatians 6, verse 12. It's those who make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they would not be persecuted for the cross of Messiah. For even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the Torah, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. By which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. Paul says this, puts it on the overhead. You're a whole new person, you're a whole new creation if you learn to boast not in anything else, but only in the cross of Messiah. In contrast, was a very glorious person? Someone who's always boasting in all sorts of other things. If you learn to boast in Yeshua and in Him alone, you will grow spiritually by leaps and bounds. And the Paul, who perhaps the most glorious rabbinic scholar of his generation, he said this, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2, for I determined to know nothing among you, but Yeshua the Messiah and Him crucified. This mindset, this heart attitude will heal you. And then the world can't control you anymore. Next overhead. If you want this deep inner healing in your soul, and a secure identity in the Lord, which only the gospel can do for you, two things are essential. The first is you've got to understand the doctrine of the cross.
0: When Paul says, Galatians
1: 6.14, God forbid, God forbid for me to boast in anything
0: except the cross
1: of Messiah. Well, what does it mean to boast in the cross?
3: Before we get to, we get to anything
1: else, Paul's saying you've got to understand the cross, the, the, the execution state. Your life won't be changed, uh, uh, the world won't be changed, unless you understand and embrace the cross, the atonement. By, by the way, this is what, what Pesach and the people are all about. Substitutionary atonement. Messiah's life for ours through the blood sacrifice of Yeshua on the tree. And it, it's pictured in the blood of the Catherine Lamb, saving us from the angel of death. It's pictured <laughs> in the blood of the young people are both, covering our sins, scribbled on the blood of the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies, which contain the Ten Commandments, atoning for our breaking of the law, and enabling us now to enter God's presence through our great high priest, Yeshua the Messiah, on the day of atonement. So everything starts with the cross, with the tree of death that became the tree of life as Cain. In Matthew 16, Yeshua asks Peter, "Who do you say I am?" Matthew 16:16. 16, 16, Simon Peter says, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." And Yeshua applauds Paul's answer and says, "That is a revelation from God." And then what happens? He and then immediately Yeshua begins to talk about the cross. Look at Matthew 16, 21 From that time, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Yerushalayim
0: and suffer many things from the elders
1: of chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day Yeshua starts talking about the cross
2: and immediately Peter starts,
1: starts to get very upset at this starts to rebuke
0: Yeshua you're the son of God you're the Messiah, but this cross business, I
1: don't like that that, that makes, makes no sense, sense. That's not going to happen to you. God forbid. And Yeshua does not say, get me behind me, Peter. Right? No, what does he say? Matthew 16, 23, get me behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Yeshua says to Peter, get me behind me, Satan. Because when you get the doctrine of the cross wrong, you're in the grip of Satan. When the doctrine of the cross wrong, you are doing Satan's bidding. You're you're Satan's missionary. Not mine, says Yeshua. There's a lot of people today in the body of Messiah who get the doctrine of the cross wrong. And that's the basis for everything. It's important. It can't be overestimated. When you think about this, the Gospels are one of their biography of the life of Yeshua, right? And yet, close to half the Gospels, and in John's case, over half, of the entire book is spent in the last week of Yeshua's life. That's how central and important the cross is, and who <laughs> Yeshua is, and what his mission was, what he did for you. Yeshua comes to earth in order to go to the cross. Without the cross, nothing else in the Bible makes sense. Without the cross, there's no atonement, no forgiveness, no rebirth, no salvation, no new man, no new creation. So, the overhead is to understand, number two, and understand the doctrine of the cross, you need to be willing to embrace and accept and feel the offense of the cross.
0: You'll never really
1: understand the cross unless you feel the offense of it.
0: Galatians 6.12 Those
1: who want to make a good showing of the flesh would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they won't be persecuted for the cross of the Messiah. Paul oh, says so the same thing in the prior chapter, by the way, in Galatians 5.11. He says, Brothers, those who preach circumcision want to remove the offense of the cross. The context here, of course, is uh, there are certain Messianic Jews who feared that their fellow Jews would reject them if their Gentile converts were circumcised uh, and become Jews. But, of course, it's bigger than this immediate first-century context. The cross, yes, is an offense to our fellow Jews, even to this day, But it's not an offense only to them. The cross is an offense to everybody. Uh, For example, uh, Alfred Jules Ayres and Bertrand Russell were the both famous 20th century British philosophers. Here's what they say about the cross. Alfred Jules Ayres, the doctrine of the atonement and the cross of Yeshua the Messiah is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Bertrand Russell, no one is profoundly human, To believe that God really would punish sin like that. The cross is a doctrine of cruelty. By the way, a lot of people think religion and morality are fine, they're okay, uh, and good for us as a society, but they find the doctrine of the cross offensive. And they yell this, they say something like this, are you saying to us that that, that those of us who worked our entire lives to keep ourselves out of the gutter are in the exact same place spiritually, as those who are in the gutter? That's offensive. Are you saying that both we morally upright people and the degenerates in the gutter have to be saved in the exact same way? How dare you? Or they say this, are you saying that good people with other religions who've lived good lives, that they don't embrace the cross of Yeshua, they're lost? How dare you? The cross of Messiah is offensive in many ways, all sorts of ways, and if you haven't come to grips with this, if you haven't felt it, and if you've never struggled with it, you may not be really getting it, and therefore it's
3: not going to change you.
1: Number three, overhead, how does it change? The answer is you must boast in the cross. And interestingly, uh, in all these sorts of all these books so that Paul writes in Romans. 1 Corinthians, uh, Philippians, and here in Galatians, when Paul starts talking about the cross and the atonement, he starts talking about boasting. how again.
2: So from here in Galatians 6,
1: um, put overhead. Paul is, is actually connected, being a new creation, uh, and boasting in the cross. And if you boast in anything else, that makes you gain glories. Boasting in anything else is a form of idolatry. So what is boasting? I mentioned this once before. Uh, originally, boasting was part of warfare. Uh, how do you get people to charge and almost certain death? How do you motivate soldiers to, to attack an enemy? And you start with a boast.
0: Uh, a ritual boast was when a general or a
1: king would stand up and they say something like, "Our hands are stronger than theirs. Our spears are sharper than theirs." Everybody else, yay! They all charge the enemy. <laughs> it was a ritual boast. And we see this all throughout the Bible, by the way. So, for example, in the Song of Sea. you see the Egyptians boasting. Exodus 15, 9. Egypt boasts, will pursue them, and draw swords and destroy them. 1 uh, Kings 20, 11. boasts, one who boasts, uh, puts on his armor should boast like one who takes it off. That's where you had the victory. A boast is how you got yourself ready to charge. How you got yourself you got the confidence uh, to charge the enemy.
0: There's all kinds of boasts. Here's one of my favorite modern boasts
1: of the overhead. Bill Murray, Ghostbusters. This shit is toast. (laughs) (laughs) It's a modern day (laughs) boast. A boast is essentially saying, we've got what it takes to prevail. We've got the cannons, we've got the spears, we've got the champion, we've got Goliath, and we boast. Now, Paul's saying everybody boasts in something. He takes a military idea and says, you need to stop boasting other things and begin boasting in the cross. Look in at Jeremiah nine twenty three. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this: And he knows and understands me, the Lord. The Jeremiah picture in the overhead. Everyone boasts in something. Because what you boast in reveals your identity. It highlights your ultimate allegiance and priority. It shows deep down who you really are. It's what you look to that, that validates you, that strengthens you, uh, that, that makes you confident to face things. Where does your confidence come from? Where does your strength come from?
2: Where does your validation come from?
1: Everybody boasts in something. Uh, Which in modern terms, we say that's the way we, where we get our identity from. Everybody finds their confidence, their identity in something. For example, uh, I, I get my identity by saying, I'm a good father. When you say, I'm a good mother. Uh, I'm a good provider. I, I work hard. Uh, I'm a good student. I'm, I'm smart. Uh, or, or I'm rich. Uh, or I'm moral. Uh, I'm honest. I'm a good person. Uh, or I'm good looking. Or I'm a good athlete. I'm the strongest. Or I'm a member of this particular racial group, or ethnic group. Or, or I'm Jewish, that's where I boasted. Or, or I'm conservative, or, or I'm liberal. Or, or I care about the poor, I, I help people. Or, or I'm a professional. Or I'm a veteran. Or, or I homeschool my kids. Or I go into ministry, that's I am. Everybody puts their identity in something. Everybody boasts in something. And especially when the chips are down, we almost instinctively point to something that's our ultimate confidence. And when Satan accuses us, as we turn to whatever it is we boast, here comes the accuser. And the devil will always outflank you if you do that. Because if you say, but I do this, I do that, the fact is, your righteousness is as a filthy rag. If you rely on it, you are on sinking sand. And deep down, you know how fragile and how inadequate it is, and so you live in denial. You know the whole modern self-esteem movement it's all about boasting. You know, secular psychologists will tell you, "Tell yourself you're beautiful." Tell yourself you do anything you want, or anything you put your mind to. Social media is filled with boasts, right? But well, what does the Bible say? Philippians three three: We boast only in Messiah Yeshua. And put no confidence in the flesh.
0: Yeah.
1: First Corinthians one thirty one: that yeah. one who boasts
0: boasts in the Lord.
1: Yeah. Notice how Paul takes this Jeremiah nine passage, which is about God, and applies it here in Philippians and Corinthians to Yeshua. So what does it mean to boast in the cross? It means at least two things. On the overhead, it means number one, you're seeking the applause of God, uh, not man. Uh, next slide. Uh, Romans 7, Romans two twenty nine. For those who are circumcised in the heart by the Spirit and not by the written code, uh, such uh, a man's praise is not from man, but from God. By the way, the word praise here is actually the word applause. Those who boast only in the cross, only in God himself, when they boast only in the cross, God himself claps his applause for you. When you become a Yeshua follower, God sees you as perfect in Messiah and applauds. C.S. Lewis writes this It's written that if we're in Messiah, we please God. It seems impossible. A weight of glory that our hearts can hardly sustain. But so it is. The door on which we've been knocking all our life will finally open at last. All your life, you've been knocking at a door. Affirm me. Love me. Tell me I'm okay. You've been looking for it all the wrong places. Trying desperately uh, to get this affirmation for other people. Exploiting other people. Uh, working all your relationships so you can somehow squeeze self-acceptance from other people. But it never ultimately works. Next slide. But in the gospel, the door in which you've been knocking all your life open at last. That's overhead. Well, to only the cross means seeing what Yeshua did for you to get the applause of God. To boast of the cross is to look and see what Yeshua did to obtain for you your salvation. Yeshua was beaten and mocked, crucified. All your sins put on him. Uh, uh, and God the Father poured out His justice, His judicial wrath uh, on Him for what you and I deserved for our sins, so that we might now have life and be saved. Second Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. To boast in the cross is to see this. And ever glorify and thank God for his unfathomable mercy and grace. Yeshua was jeered so that you could get the applause of God. Yeshua was forsaken on the cross. But God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you might be accepted? Yeshua on the cross heard depart from me so that you might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. To boast to the cross, next slide, is number one, to realize that the only pair of eyes that counts in the whole universe looks at you and sees absolute beauty. And number two, to boast to the cross, to see what Yeshua did for you, suffered for you, and to praise Him all your days. Next slide, that will enable you now to move out into all your relationships, saying, my life
3: for yours. Galatians six fourteen, the world
1: is crucified to me, and I to the world. When you boast only the cross, the world no longer has a hold on you. The things of the world no longer drive you. You no longer obsess and lust after them. The world no longer has a claim on you. Who cares what they think? For example, money uh, is no longer my identity. It's no longer my precious. Now it's just money, so I can give it away. Romantic relationships are are no longer your very life. So you don't melt down if your boyfriend or girlfriend criticizes you or even breaks up with you. Because your affirmation ultimately comes from God, not man.
0: My holy brothers and sisters,
1: that's fine. Know in your heart of hearts, that Yeshua really died and really shed his blood for you. Meditate on that. Let it fill you daily with wonder, and excitement, and thanksgiving, and joy, and ecstasy, and love, and gratitude, and worship. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. With the power of God for salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first, and also the Gentile. Boast in the cross, and watch the glory of God descend. And move mountains
2: and revival power.
1: Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I stand and pray. Hallelujah. On the music team, please come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Lord God, we can never thank you enough. We can never thank you enough for the cross of Messiah. What he did to rescue us from death by laying down his own life. No greater love has this than laying down your life for your friend. But Yeshua, you are so much greater because you lead every life for us when we were your enemies. You took on the wrath and the justice and the punishment and the curse for sin that we deserved. So that when we repent and turn from our sin, and turn from ourselves and turn from our pride and our conceit and our envy, envying, and our provoking one another and our self-centeredness. Let I me mean, turn to you, Yeshua. You give us your life. You give us your righteousness.
2: You make us beloved and adopted
1: and accepted and welcome in the sight of God. Hallelujah. Help us, Lord, this day to embrace your cross. Not to be ashamed of the gospel. And once we see that we're fully accepted in you, Yeshua, by the only pure of eyes that counts for the whole universe, how was I then to move out into all our relationships?
0: Not trying to gain acceptance
1: or bolster our ego or use or exploit people or to see people only in terms of what they can do for us, but to serve others, to love others, to sacrifice and clean out our lives for one another. To see what we can do for them, how we can help them and bless them, especially those of the household of faith. Help us, Lord, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of the Messiah. We pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen.
0: Shabbat shalom.